Father, as we come to this text, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes to it. Father, I pray that you would convict us in areas of our lives where we can be like this Pharisee in the parable. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified by our trust in you and not ourselves. That you would bring that as a part of a reality to us. Father, I pray that someone who's here today, who does not know how to be reconciled to a perfect and holy God, that they might leave here today justified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The last... uh, few days I haven't been able to taste is finally now starting to come back. I've never tossed or I've never thought about taste so much until you don't have it. (laughs) You start asking your questions, uh, philosophical questions about uh, that you would never ask if you've never lost your taste. I start thinking, what is taste? It really stinks to lose it. Uh, part of my life that I really enjoy is gone when my taste goes. And the Lord, it was the Lord's idea to give taste so that He could put verses in the Bible like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible doesn't merely say, know God, but it says, taste and see that He's good, that He's to be savored. The Pharisee in the parable surely knew more about God than the vile tax collector. But what the tax collector knew about God he had taste for. It's a scary thing to think about. You can be so much in religion and in knowledge, but potentially lack the type of taste that would cling and desire God. So this morning, I want to begin by asking several self-reflecting questions on the front end to help you know how important this parable might be for you. One of the big mistakes we make when we come to Jesus' parables is that as Christians, we just always assume that we're the good guy. That we're in the good category. And I ask the next nine questions to you to maybe help you see that you need this parable this morning. That maybe you have been in terrible sin 
the sin of self-righteousness that is often unseen by those who are Christians. The first question is this. Do I tend to have a critical spirit towards others, easily finding others' weaknesses and faults, and often overlooking the good? Is that a tendency in your life? Do you tend to get defensive when you get critiqued? Do you think of yourself as basically in the good categories of groups? Homeschooler, maybe? Republican? American? As you think of yourself and you look at the world, do you basically see yourself in the good category of good people? Do you enjoy talking about the moral failure of others in other groups? Is this the topic of conversation that you enjoy having with your friends? Do I or do you justify your sin by blaming your circumstances or others? Do you find yourself, when you're sinning, apologizing but saying, but this, or you did that? Do you view your heart attitude and actions in life as mostly good and successful? So if you answered yes to any of those questions, or maybe half of them, I would say, lean in to this parable. Because although Christian, you may be saved, if you are, there's still remaining sin that is in your life and in my life that we can relate to the self-righteous Pharisee. In fact, I would argue that for us, this might be the parable for a Christian. Because if you think about it, the peer pressure we have growing up as a kid, we're always taught about peer pressure. You know, kids at school are going to tell you to do these, to do drugs and to have sex and do all these terrible things. And how are you going to stand up to peer pressure? But if we're honest, the peer pressure we have as Christians is actually to live holy lives. You don't want to cheat on your spouse because the people you care about most, your friends, would think that's bad. You don't want to struggle with uh, addictions, pornography, things like that, because the peer pressure is, it's bad. For us, it seems like the devil's best move would be the sin of self-righteousness. Because it's in our fellowship 
we can actually unknowingly be fanning the flame of self-righteousness and all the while forget what the gospel really is that unites us. Three more questions. If you answer no to these, I would also say lean in. Do I tend to invite accountability, discipline, and the critique of others into my life? Is that a tendency for you? Do I quickly confess my sin? Do I pray first or do I try first? Do I try it in my own strength first or do I pray first? If you try first, then you're like me a lot of times. You say, how did you come up with these questions? I came up with questions for me that I answer all too often the wrong way. And so a text like this is designed for a guy like me. This morning I want to speak the truth of God's Word to you that you might be free, that you might be let out of a prison. And that word is basically this. You ready for it? You ready to be released? You are not good. You're not. The Bible doesn't say you are. The testimony of Scripture is against you. You are not a good one. You are not, you are not born in the category of the right one. And so much of our life, so much of the anxiety and striving of our life is to prove that I'm a good one to God and to others. To prove that I'm better than I really am. Which is why almost every time Paul in his letters gets to the point of asking Christians to do something, before he asks them to do something, he has a statement talking about humility. Something like this, Romans 12.3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So here's the charge. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Then he's going to ask them to go serve the Lord. Because to ask us to go do all this stuff in obedience to God, in service to God, but forget who we are from the outset is to fall in to the sin of spiritual pride so easily. 
So this morning, I'm going to ask you to humble yourself and trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's what we're going to see in this text. And this text comes in a context uh, beginning in chapter 17, uh, verse 20, up, up, up until right now, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. And He's been talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. And when Christ will return on this earth, and then we saw what the our prayer life ought to be, those of us that are spiritually partaking in the kingdom of God in Christ, when He gave the parable of the persistent widow. The point of that parable was not to lose heart in praying for the King to come and set up His kingdom. And it seems now He begins to talk about who gets into the kingdom. Who's going to get in to this kingdom? Who's going to enter in? Who's the righteous one? Next week we're going to see that You're not getting into the kingdom if you're not like a little child. And then you're going to see that the rich man that everyone thinks surely he's getting in isn't getting in. And so we read, uh, one way to look at this parable, the way we're going to look at it is, we're going to look at the people that's being addressed, and then we're going to look at the parable, and then we're going to look at the prognosis, the prophecy of what's going to be the result So look at verse 9. Let's see the people. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he told the parable to people who trusted that they were righteous in themselves. And... The byproduct of that is treating other people with contempt. Those are the people addressed in the parable. And I'm just going to point out right now, it's interesting that Luke does not say he told this parable to the Pharisees. It said he told this parable to some. Because as we see in the Gospels, it wasn't just the Pharisees that struggled with self-righteousness, but we also watch Peter struggle with self-confidence in himself. Now in the parable, a Pharisee is a character. That is true. But this parable is told to people who trust in their own righteousness and hold other people in contempt. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees? Because they were definitely people who did. Back in Luke 16, 15, He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The most popular people in town are the Pharisees. Everybody looks up to them. They're the spiritual elites. They're the high class of society. They're the ones people bow down to and they get the praise of men, but God knows their hearts. So they fool men 
They justify themselves before men. They get the praise of men, but God knows their hearts. And what man praises is an abomination before God. That's what we read in Luke 16. Back in Luke 10.25, if you remember, we read, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and live. Now, I think if you would have heard those words out of Jesus' mouth, that would have been kind of bad news. Because here's a Pharisee that knows this, or a lawyer that knows this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the law. Yeah, you got the law, right? Keep it. Well, that doesn't give a person much assurance. And so how did he respond in verse 29? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Jesus says, yep, that's right. Love God and love your neighbor. Oh, man. Who's my neighbor? Because if I can't clearly define that my neighbor is people I like, then I'm not getting in to heaven. And so the Pharisees were those who justified themselves and looked down on the people. In John 7.45, we read this, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring Jesus? They wanted him to arrest him, to grab him. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Have any of the good, right ones, the smart ones believed in him? And then what what, what do they say? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees looked at the crowds as accursed and themselves as the smart ones. And they're mocking these officers saying, oh, you're not like us, you're like them. You've been deceived by this man. But this Peter was like this as well. I mean, you read Mark 14, 27. Jesus said to them, you will fall away for it is written. So on the authority of Scripture, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter looks at his friends, fellow disciples. They'll probably fall away. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And then what do all the rest of them say? We're not going to fall away either. So what are they struggling with? Confidence in themselves. Trusting in their own goodness. Yeah, Jesus, that's what the Scripture says. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But we're above Scripture. We're better. We won't do that. They 
did it. He denied Christ three times. To trust in oneself is to be ignorant of God and ignorant of yourself. You don't see either of those things clearly. When we trust in ourselves, we'll inherently treat others with contempt because the only way you make your case for being good is in comparison to other people, which means now the people in your life have to be used as pawns to measure your life against and show yourself better. If you're going to struggle with spiritual pride, you're going to be an unloving person because you're a good one and they're a bad one. And when you see yourself as right, you feel justified in not loving them on the basis of truth because I'm in the good category. And we're going to see that the root of the problem is pride. Uh, The root sin here is pride that poisons the minds of all those who are trusting in themselves. Because let's be honest, perfection is demanded. What, What fools we are when we trust in ourselves. What did Jesus say? Matthew 5.48 You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what Jesus said in the New Testament. You be perfect. He doesn't come to Christians and say, oh, you're sinners. So try your best. No, God accomplished salvation for sinners but says, be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. The Old Testament taught this clearly. For I am the, Leviticus 11.45, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Says the same thing, Leviticus 19.22. How does Peter say it? 1 Peter 4.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy James 2.10 for whoever keeps the whole law imagine if you kept the entire law but fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it you who said do not commit adultery also or he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment without mercy is given to the one who is has shown no mercy mercy triumphs over judgment You want to find your righteousness in yourself? Well, here's the deal. If you've broken the law at one point, you're a lawbreaker of all of it. If you've ever lusted in your heart after stuff or someone that's not your spouse, you're a murderer as well as an adulterer and a thief. 
and an idolater. You've broken all of it. Who can stand? Who can be righteous in and of themselves? So I say it again, you're not good. And I'm not good. And we're not in a special category of people. We're not the smart ones. We're not the moral ones. And so the question is going to be, how can a person enter that kingdom? It seems impossible. It seems impossible. Jeremiah 13.23 says, can an Ethiopian change his skin color? Or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? Can you do that? If a leopard can't change his spots, then you who are accustomed to doing evil cannot be good. You can't do that for yourself. Makes sense if you keep reading Jeremiah, because in chapter 17, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So how deceitful is your heart above all things? All things? Could my heart be more deceitful than Satan himself? I don't know. What, what's all things that Jeremiah is talking about? Because if I'm going to produce my own righteousness, my own heart better have some good tendencies in there. Does the Bible tell you to trust your heart? Because the world does. Hear it over and over and over again. Trust. Just trust yourself. Believe in yourself. Quit sinning against yourself. That does not come from Scripture. Job says this, most righteous man on earth, God said so, when Job lived in chapters 1 and 2. He loses everything, and what does he do? Tears his clothes, worships God, and the Scripture says he never sinned in all those things. You're not like Job, and I'm not like Job. But here's what Job says in light of his knowledge of God about himself. Job 9.28 I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with a lie, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Oh, Job, there is an arbiter that can lay his hand on both. But Job knows a God that he will not be held innocent when he stands before him apart from the mediator. Apart from one to stand in his place. Isaiah 64, 6. We've all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
which most commentators speak of the polluted garment as actually like menstruation cloths. We've all become unclean. Your best deeds, your righteous deeds, the best, the best you got in and of yourself is like a polluted garment before God. Psalm 143.2 Enter not into judgment with your servant. No one living is righteous before you. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no one who does not sin. Proverbs 20 verse 9 Who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Should the Pharisee have known since he knows the Old Testament so well that he is not righteous and that he should throw himself on the mercy of God? Yes, he should have known that from the testimony of Scripture, which has been clear from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they do is trust in their own ability to save themselves as they grab fig leaves and try to sow them around themselves. And Jesus shows them at the end of chapter 3 that animal skins, God makes the clothing, God covers their nakedness, pointing that there's going to have to be a sacrifice. Blood's going to have to be shed to cover your shame. At the Way back to the very beginning, man has been attempting to cover his own sin. So these are the people, those who are trusting in their own righteousness, that he writes this parable to. So let's look at the parable. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. It's a comparison parable. This is almost how all of Jesus' parables work. His parables are shocking, shocking to those who hear them. And so two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee, the other the tax collector, extreme ends of the spectrum. Pharisee, highest class of society, most religious. Tax collector, bottom, outcast of society, the most hated person in Israel. The Jews hated tax collectors because most of them were lining their pockets and stealing from their own brothers, representing Rome and lining their pockets Tax collectors were hated. The last person getting into heaven in anyone's mind was a tax collector. We've seen this all the way through Luke. Luke 5.30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It, they've always had this beef with Jesus. This is how you know Jesus is a liar. Look at who he's with. Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15.1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's really bothered them. 
And then we learn a few verses later in Luke 15, 7, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. 99 people who think I'm good. Heaven does not applaud any righteousness you have conjured up in your own flesh because there's no righteousness there to celebrate. But the good news is, is heaven celebrates repentance and trust in Christ. That's when the party is thrown. That's when truth is exalted. That's what heaven can glory in. So let's look at these two praying men. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. So they're in the temple. He's standing by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. At this point, the prayer could be good. But then he says that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee says, I'm not in the class of other men. I'm not like them. God, I thank you that I, 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 I. What's he thanking God for again? What did God do that he is thanking him for in that prayer? Seems like God should be thanking him for all that he, he, he has done. Here we see, as we look at these two men, two types of people, two types of religion. There's the religion of man's works and there's the religion of divine accomplishment which the Scripture reveals. Those are the only two religions in the world. Every other religion is about what man must do. Christianity is this is what God has accomplished. Only two religions in the universe represented in two men. Almost the whole world believes good people are going to heaven. Those who accomplish good works. Good enough. At least enough to outweigh the bad. Christianity is unique. It says, you're not good, but God has done something. And so as we look at the Pharisee, and we look at his prayer, it's the prayer of what he has done for God. It's a prayer, or it, it's the type of prayer that says, God, I. It's the God, I type of prayer. Okay, God, do I have your attention? I did this. We're going to see when we look at the tax collector, God be 
merciful. See, there's a God be you be you, because that's what I need. And then there's the God, look at what I have done. You're let out of the prison if you can pray that God be prayer. I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners. He looks at all the sin he sees in others. Unjust, adulterers. Daryl Bach says this prayer form is revealing. It starts out like a thanksgiving psalm in which God is praised for something He has done, but the form is perverted since the occasion of thanksgiving is what the man has done for God. Here is trust in oneself. His real prayer is, God, I thank You that I'm so marvelous. It sounds good because he's thanking God. What What is he thanking God for? You can't find it in that prayer. He's evidently thanking God for his own superiority over other men. In fact, ESV might be kind in the way it translates this verse because it says, standing by himself, he prayed thus. The NASB says this, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. A prayer to yourself. Or the NIV says this, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The KJV says the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. See, a unique type of prayer. God's not even involved. His word is, but really it's a man talking to himself, praising himself. There was no request, no reliance on God, but a mere declaration of his own goodness. He saw himself as a unique, as unique and in a special category from other men. There is no petition or need of God. So let me ask the question to you again. Do you, in general, see yourself as a good one? As a one that stands in a special category. Now, in Christ, we do. But in you and in myself, we don't. And if it's in Christ, then who cares about us? Because it's not in us. It's in Him. All glory to Him then. And then He says, I fast twice a week. God required one fast of the Israelites on the Day of Atonement. They fasted on Monday and Thursday according to the Talmud. They took God's law and they did did much better than the law of God. You know, Jesus said, you guys are really good at breaking the law of God by adding to it. (laughs) You become experts I figured out how to get by the heart issues that get at your heart and make yourself look better as you make up all these other rules that you follow that they don't. And then they give tithes of all they get. You know, God, God required tithes of certain things of those in Israel, like crops. But you want to know, they took their little cumin 
They get a little bit of coming from the grocery cart. Well, you give this much to God. 10% of everything. Of the dill. Jesus said, you'll strain out a gnat, swallow a camel. And this is the very thing the Pharisee is praying about. That he's excited about. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. This is a man who isn't thinking about what other people are thinking about him. Nobody wants to watch a man beat his breast. Head down. Pure, purely distraught over his own sinfulness. That's why most people don't come to Christ. Never make it to the moment of brokenness to where true repentance happens. When else did someone beat their breasts? Remember the people that watched the crucifixion of Christ? Goes dark at noon. Says they beat their breasts. They knew injustice was done. The centurion said surely he was the son of God. tax collector standing far off, not, not feeling he can get close to that holy place, couldn't even lift his head up to heaven, had his head down and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I'm here to tell you that this is not a presumptuous prayer, but it's a prayer of faith. Someone might say, how dare he, as such a rotten sinner, expect God to show him mercy? You want to know why? Because God told Moses who he is in Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So when he says, God, be merciful, he's saying, I believe you are who you are and that you can forgive even me and that you're a God who forgives people like me. It was a prayer of faith in who God is. What a, what a beautiful prayer. If you want to find the sinner's prayer in the Bible, here it is. It isn't ask Jesus in your heart. That verse isn't in the Bible. But the verse that is in the Bible is the verse that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I need to be saved by You. Paul saw himself this way. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You say, yeah, you, you're, you're saying I'm bad, really? Well, Paul, after he was saved, said, I'm the foremost of sinners. How can he say that honestly? When he was sanctified beyond you and I. Here's why. If Paul had to make a list of all his own sins and 
anyone else's, he's not going to have a problem making this list long if he has any sort of enlightenment. You make a list of all of Hitler's sins. And you make the list of your sins, and your list is going to be longer. Why? Because you live with you. You know your thoughts. You know who you are. We all should be able to say, the greatest sinner I know is myself because I live with me. Paul lived with Paul. I can make a better case against me than any of you when it comes to sin. But what joy Paul had. How? Because he saw Christ. Because he knew who he was in Christ. That he's a new creation in Christ. That he stands in Christ. Yes, as he looks at the present and he sees remaining sin. He says, "Who? what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What wonderful news that is. That word, be merciful, is a verb that comes from a noun which means propitiation. And Literally, he says, God, be propitiated. Let thy anger be removed. He's asking for a sacrifice. He's saying, God, I know there's wrath for my sin. You need to do something to swallow up your own wrath. To be merciful to me. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Here, he's saying, God, don't give me what I deserve. But it's not just have a feeling towards me of being being forgiving, but he's saying, act, do something to swallow up the wrath of God against my sin. And praise God in Christ, God has done that. So let's look at the prognosis. Here's the surprising ending. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, acquitted of sin. It's in the perfect tense. He went down to his house justified. Why is the perfect tense so glorious? Because it's an act that has been completed in the past that is true in the present and will be true forevermore. It's shocking. The sinner who hasn't done anything good yet but cries out for the mercy of God is forever acquitted of all sin, justified. That is offensive, shocking grace that only God can give in 
Christ. And it's what the whole Testament has already been teaching. Genesis 15, 6, speaking of Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and are, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous. But when he believed God's promises, God counted his faith as righteousness in his account. What wonderful news. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There is righteous people and unrighteous people. But the righteous people do not have a righteousness of their own, but a foreign righteousness that's been given to them as a gift. That's what a Christian is. A sinner who's been given a gift that was received by faith. But we no longer look at the rest of the world and say, man, I'm good compared to them. No, we say, what are, who are you? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Psalm 32, 1. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The no deceit he's talking about is confession of sin. That's something you can actually do. You can actually admit you're a sinner. And say, God, I have no hope. Be merciful to me. I want to end this part right here in Philippians 3 and let you see Paul. If there's anyone who could boast in his own goodness. Here's, listen, listen to what he says. For we are of the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, we're weird people. We don't put any confidence in our own works. Though I myself have reason for confidence in our, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, if you want to do the good works thing, I'll outdo you. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I used to count, whatever he used to have as his own righteousness, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Best news in the world. Best news in the world. You can be righteous. You can have confidence that you will for sure see God in heaven when you lose confidence in yourself and cry out for God to save you, a sinner. And it's my prayer in a room this big 
there are surely those who have walked the Christian life never having true repentance because they trusted that they're on the right team and that they're a good one and they like the team they're on. And it's my prayer that you would fall before God and say, my only hope is in you and in your salvation. And then Jesus ends by saying this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. This is the prognosis, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two types of people in the world. Anyone who tries to make himself look better will be humbled ultimately in hell. But then there's those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, under God's word, let the word of God kill him in in having any righteousness in and of themselves. They humble themselves. What does Christ do? What does God do? He exalts them. You want to know where grace is? Right there. He said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Swallow up the wrath. And God does that for you. But then Jesus says, anyone who humbles himself, not only will God swallow up the wrath, but he'll do the most shocking thing. He'll pick you up and he'll exalt you into the presence of God. And for all eternity, he will lavish upon you grace, never-ending, undeserved grace and glory that you don't deserve and I don't deserve. And that's just out of this world. Shocking. Father, I pray that we would be humble. Father, with all the truth that you've given us in your word and a body that loves the word of God and a body that wants to live a righteous life, Father, help us not fall in to self-righteousness. Let us remember who we are as we witness to this community. Let's tell them what true church is. A real church are those who know they're not good but need a Savior. And yes, God begins to conform us into the image of Christ and their sanctification. But even that is all to Your glory so that we would never boast in and of ourselves. Lord, thank You for salvation for sinners like myself. God, I pray that no one would leave here without clinging to You. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.